0: Singer-songwriter Kenny Loggins has had a long, successful career. He launched into the scene in the 70s.
1: In the
0: the early 80s, he took home two Grammys. Then he became the so-called king of the soundtrack, writing hit theme songs for Top Gun, Caddyshack,
1: Footloose. Footloose.
0: Now he's an author. His new memoir, Still All Right, recounts his life on and off stage. It was released in June, a couple of weeks after the new Top Gun movie hit theaters. The original film was a huge hit in 1986, as was the theme song he recorded. Let's hear a bit more of that song, and let's hear from Kenny Loggins himself. He joined us from his home in California. So, of course, Danger Zone is in the new Top Gun movie, too, and it had a big jump in downloads in the past month. Tell us about how that song came about.
2: There was a a big call, what we call a cattle call, for uh, recording artists to see um, a rough cut of the first Top Gun. And at the rough cut, I decided since there was so much competition in the room, I would write for the volleyball scene, uh, which would be I figured nobody would write for. And so I landed uh, uh, playing with the boys for the volleyball scene. Say it was the right walk, walk away. While I was in the studio recording that, uh, I got a call asking if I was available to sing Danger Zone because they needed to dub it into the movie in three days. And uh, apparently the act, the act that they had set to sing the song had dropped out for whatever reason. I sat with the song, I added some chords, and made a few lyric changes here and there, and a um, little bit of melody tweak, but nothing much. And then I, I went in, and uh, two days later, I was in the studio, and I, and I sang the
0: vocal. Talk a bit about the vocal on this song, because you were you were having some fun here. You, you mentioned Tina Turner and how much her vocals were an inspiration.
2: Yeah, I was deep into the uh, Private Dancer album at that time, Tina's at record, and, and I loved what she was doing. She was bringing her R&B thing that she'd practically invented uh, into a more of a rock uh, position. She'd kind of tweaked the sound of her voice to fit into a rock thing, and I really loved what she was doing with that, and I wanted to try and bring that edge to my own vocal.
0: went to see a screening of the new top gun maverick film and i have to tell you as soon as that song started to play there was a woman sitting next to me and she just went full fist pump mode i mean she was she was super (laughs) hype about this song what do you think it is about about that song and that soundtrack that just still resonates with audiences today well i think the
2: the power of the movie uh is is within that the power of that song the two are inseparable now Uh, there was a period of time where i tried to reinvent danger zone to be more about you know extreme sports or some kind of you know to be less militaristic obviously you know because when cnn started using it as the background music to bombing iraq i was uh uncomfortable with that to say the least so I wanted to reinvent it, but now that I can see that the song and the movie are inextricable, and they really one one enhances the other, obviously.
0: So, what is it about this stage of your life that made you want to to publish a memoir?
2: You know, I've been putting it off for years. Um, that I'd been it had been requested by publishers for at least ten years, and um, and I just felt like. I didn't want to write it until I had a full story. And and as I came closer to thinking about um, some version of retirement, whether it's probably just to lighten up on touring, maybe to just a few a year or something, you know, because I've done it since I was 21. And I thought, oh, okay, well, this is coming to a close, and maybe this chapter is coming to a close. So maybe it's time to write one. I've been reticent because I always felt like writing a memoirs was – like closing the book and, and closing the story and suddenly I can be done and I'm not, I'm not thrilled about the idea of being totally done but I, um, I want to stay creative, I want to stay you know, doing what I do, writing and recording hopefully to some well, degree Well
0: let's go back to, to the beginning of your career you wrote this song Danny's song when you were just 17 Even though
1: so in love with an everything will bring a change in the morning when I rise, bring a tear of joy to my eyes, and tell me
0: everything's gonna be alright. Oh, that song became a hit in nineteen seventy-one when you released it as a collaboration with songwriter Jim Messina. And we'll get back to that very successful partnership in a bit. But this song is about your older brother, Danny. Why did you write the song for him? He had uh, joined Volunteers
2: in Service to America, Vista, in nineteen probably sixty six. It was there that he met his future wife. While well, in Danville, Illinois, they they had a baby, and so. He wrote me a letter about his new life, told me about this child that he had, and it was the first I'd heard of it. It was a a reflex reaction for me to write a song, you know, inspired by that letter. So there are lines like, he will be like she and me, uh, that was, you know, taken from the letter, things like that. Mm
0: -hmm. What led you to first pick up a guitar?
2: (laughs) Um, I, I was attracted to the guitar as early as the seventh grade, I—I um, I, I don't know—I had a feeling that it was something you know that I wanted to do, and this was obviously before folk music or, or or the Beatles by any chance. And I just uh, had a sense that it was something that I could do, and I wanted to try and get into it. And then gradually, uh, it became a way of me expressing myself. I was in a uh, two Catholic schools, one after the other, first one through eight, and then on into high school. So there were, there were rarely girls involved in my life, especially in high school. It was an all-boys school. So girls became that thing that is from another planet that I don't know how to talk to. And because I have two big brothers, but I have no girls in my family. And so um, as, a, as a way to express myself and to reach out and make friends, I started using my music.
0: I want to listen to another one of the hits you wrote as a teenager. This one is called House at Pooh Corner. So help me
1: if you
0: can, I've got to get back to the house at Pooh Corner
1: by one. You'd be surprised, there's so much to be done. Count all the bees in the
0: it's also the name of the children's book by A. A. Milne, which was the first book you ever read. How did that book inspire this song?
2: I think it was because I was uh, about to graduate from high school, and um, I felt like I was reminded of the last chapter of House of where Christopher Robin leaves the Hundred Acre Wood. And I thought, well, this is this is me leaving the wood. And so I sort of wrote me into the story for the lyrics of the song. and. Uh, it was a farewell to childhood.
0: Now the song was close to never getting released because of copyright issues with, with Disney. Well, I, I never <laughs> actually thought about that
2: before, you know, I didn't know that that sort of thing existed. And, um, and I, I'd, I obviously had the song. It was one of my favorite personal songs that I'd written. And, uh, I played it for a band called the nitty gritty dirt band, uh, and they wanted to record it on their uncle Charlie album. And then they called me and told me that they couldn't do that because the Disney lawyers had been contacting them saying cease and desist. And, uh, and I was disappointed about that. And my friend Doug Inglesby was a close friends with uh, Marnie Walker, who was the daughter of the CEO of the Disney corporation. And, uh, in concert, I tell the story that, that, The girl I was going on a date with that night said, oh, well, Disney lawyers, let me talk to daddy about that. But that's me cheating the story for laughs. The story was really that that Doug took me over to uh, Marnie's house. I met her father, who was the CEO of the Disney Corporation and played House of the Corner for him. And he said, I'll I'll call off the docks on Monday. So don't worry about it.
0: What a a fortunate happenstance.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's a, a legacy piece of my entire career.
0: We're listening to my recent conversation with Kenny Loggins about his new memoir, Still All Right. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. She saw the
1: clouds from the sky.
0: I spoke to singer-songwriter Kenny Loggins recently about his new memoir, Still All Right. The book describes his late teenage years when he was trying to figure out where his life might lead. And I asked him about that time. He started studying music in college, but the program was focused on classical music. It wasn't a great fit.
2: I had to be able to play the piano, and I couldn't play at that
0: point. So how, how did you make that decision? to not follow broadcasting, which is what you started to then study, and to say, you know what, music is really, this is really where I need to be. Well, it was really thanks to the electric prunes. Um,
2: I was in the first year of the telecommunications program at Pasadena City College. And, you know, I can tell looking back on my work was really shoddy because my heart wasn't in it. And, um, but, you know, I liked being on microphone. (laughs) I liked Mm -hmm. the job you're doing and uh and i thought well you know i suppose if i can't do music then then you know i'll have something to fall back on that was my dad's big thing have something to fall back on and then i got a call from jeremy stewart who was the new music director for the electric prunes this was in 1967 and um and he said you want to go on the road with us and i said not if i have to play their stuff I your hair. And he said, no, you can play your own music. You'll be part of the band. And so I said, OK, I'm, I'll, I'll do it. So I dropped out and went on the road with the Electric Prunes for a few months.
0: When you were in that early stage of your music career, and, and that first tour was, it was a little rough, as it's described in the memoir, um, not the best housing accommodations. You all really didn't have anyone to manage the tour for you. But at that stage, were you imagining a future where you were a star? Or, or did you really have a vision for what your life was going to look like at that point? Um,
2: well, that was really the, the beginning of me to, to believing that it would be possible to get noticed. I always felt that rock and roll was such a high turnover gig that sooner or later I'd get a shot at you know, singing for somebody. And so I really, I made it a habit to sing for everybody. And uh, I, I never became, you know, like the, the classic lead guitar guy, but I could accompany myself well. And so that, that took me through a lot of doors. When the Electric Prunes thing happened and I started meeting publishers and, and managers and people like that, I thought, well, this is, this is worth going for. I told my dad, I'm spending 90% of my time studying something I don't want to do and ten percent of my time, if that, doing what I love.
0: Were Were you afraid that that music might not work out for you?
2: Not really. My dad was pl- doing plenty of that for me. <laughs> I, was, I, was, <laughs> I, I really loved what I was doing. I loved the music, and I kept doors kept opening for me. So I just kept walking through them. But I, I didn't know. I didn't know whether it was going to take me to the rest of my life or not. But I believed that I could get maybe a couple of good years. When Loggins and Messina first hit, my business manager said, The average age span of the acts we handle is three years. So let's just stash as much of this money that's coming in away as possible so that in three years you can move on to something else if you need to.
1: Hmm.
2: And I just never had to move on.
0: So you, you wrote House at Pooh Corner when you were a teenager. You then released a new version of the song in 1994 called Return to Pooh Corner, and it contained a new verse. Let's take a listen.
1: It's hard to explain how a few precious things Seem to follow throughout all our lives After all said and done, I was watching my son. Sleeping there with my bear by his side. So I tucked him in, I kissed him, and as I was gone, I'd swear that old bear whispered, Boy, welcome home. Believe me, if you can, I've
0: finally come. you revisited that song at a very different stage of your life than when you first wrote it. Why did you, why did you want to come back to it?
2: Well, you know, I wrote it, as you said, I wrote it in high school. And, um, and here I was now I had, uh, three kids with a fourth on the way. And I thought, yeah, I wish somebody would make a record for parents that parents could love as much as the children. Cause now I'd been through a few years of Barney. And I thought, Oh my God, they're going to send me back in. And, and suddenly <laughs> it struck me that I'd been singing bedtime songs to, for my own kids for a few years. And I actually had a repertoire, you know, and things that most people wouldn't consider children's songs like love by John Lennon, you know, which works really great a cappella, And it sounds to me like a piano class that he took and then wrote a song around it. And, uh, I figured there's probably a lot of artists who've written one or two songs for their kids. And of course the classic Disney movies had some great songs in them. And so I just started doing some research and realized that this is something I could do. And I think to, when you listen to what's out there, children's music wise, because the sales are low, most of the production value is low because they're trying to keep the cost down. And I thought, I'll just use my record deal, which has a decent you know, advance on it to make a, children-slash-parents record, which was a genre that didn't exist at the time, um, and make it with higher production values the way I would make my own records, and but keep it simple because what I recognized in my own children was the simplicity really speaks to a child. And so I, I pieced that together, and, and it, it's worked really well.
0: How does that recording process for you change, though, when when the audience at least a big part of the audience you're imagining are are your, your kids. Yeah.
2: Well, like I say, the main thing I want is to keep the recording process simple. You know, so I'm, I'm using more acoustic instruments. I realize drums are going to wake up a child. So I rarely ever use percussion on these pieces and just kind of keep them to, I found that strings was in the way strings was too much. So I used accordion instead and put accordion through reverb, and and you end up with a much more organic, you know, mandolins and, and acoustic instruments, much more organic, simple-sounding record.
0: And emotionally, is it any different for you?
2: Well, yeah, I think because um, I am doing a lot of covers, I'm doing a lot of other people's material, so uh, it's coming from a different place. Uh, emotionally, keeping in mind who I'm singing to, and it's probably like, for example, it could be you and your daughter alone in that room. You've got one light on. It's, it's bedtime. You want the child to go to sleep. So I pace the record so that it becomes more and more peaceful as it goes through. And I also found inadvertently that music that relaxes the mother will usually relax the child. It goes in both directions, right? Because if the child is really amped up, the mom is going to be somewhat amped up. So I was really aiming at that image as I produced the record. So Highway to the
0: Danger Zone, definitely not a pick for for this album. (laughs) Not even even an acoustic version. (laughs) Well, I'm curious how that song and really others from your career have served as touchstones in your life. Has your music taken on new meaning as, you, as you've as you played it over the decades? Hmm. Well, you know, a lot of
2: interviews that I do, they talk about the different stages that my music, the different genres that my music has crossed through and stages. And I know I blame my brothers for that because I, I'm, I've always been a moving target. I, I can't seem to hold still. Like when I did Footloose and the record company went, thank God you finally hit something you can hold still on. <laughs> and I went, well... I really can't. <laughs> like, it's not that I don't want to. It's just that, you know, I keep having to move on. And so I just follow the muse wherever she goes.
0: In the 70s, you released music with Jim Messina as Loggins and Messina. And the duo sold more than 16 million records. You had hits like this one from 1972. It's called Your Mama Don't Dance.
1: It's all because your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll. Your mama don't dance.
0: You've collaborated with other artists over the years, of course, Michael McDonald from the Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan. What have you learned about when a musical partnership works and when it doesn't?
2: Well, um, you can feel the difference when there's a synergy um, with the writer or writers, ideas start clicking really quick, and I find that there's a free flow of energy and ideas that, that keeps things interesting and moving Um, and usually end up with something that you're really pleased with. That's when, that's when a collaboration is working when it's not working, there's not much of a flow. There's not much back and forth happening. And, um, and that becomes very frustrating for me. I, I find that I'm often in the role of being the one who keeps track of every little idea that comes into the room. So I'll, I'll keep uh, either my phone or a tape recorder nearby and and try to log what's coming through. I worked with a, a young Israeli girl a while back who had a really um, interesting sense of melody. And so we had some chord changes. I put her in the vocal booth and she just started, I said, sing whatever comes to your mind. And she came up with melody lines I never would have thought of. and And so my job then became to distill those ideas into what would be a song. And that was easy. But even when I'm writing with Michael McDonald, let's say Michael will go into a trance and just start singing things off the top of his head. And I'll say, oh, play, play that thing again. Forget about it. He has no idea what he played. <laughs> so I have to record everything and say, check this out. This was a great idea. And so I, I'm, I'm bouncing those things back. And at the same time, when I hear something that excites me, my imagination's going off into a melodic line that would be the next logical thing. So he'll hear that back, and I'll say, now try this, you know, and, and sing it back at him. And he'll go, oh, yeah, I get it. And, and then we go one thing into another. And then he'll play that, and that'll send him somewhere. So that our melodies always come first.
0: Well, in 1980, you and Michael McDonald won a Grammy for Song of the Year, and that song was What a Fool Believes. two of you really found a, a special magic together in your collaboration. How did you meet and and start to write?
2: Well, um, I heard Michael's voice on uh, Living on a Fault Line. I didn't realize that I'd actually heard it earlier than that on uh, some Steely Dan's rec- records. And, and in particular, it was Peg, where it was full of Michael's voice. <laughs> Decided that I had to find out who this guy was and find catch up with him and see if he was into collaborating. And luckily, he was. Um, so we went initially through the managers and then we found each other. And then I went to his house in uh, Encino. I was unpacking my guitar from the trunk of the car, and uh, and the door, to, the front door to his home was open, and he was trying out ideas for his sister. And he played the piano line on what da full he played that piano line and then he stopped. And he'd been humming along with that piano line and my imagination kept going. And I heard the next section of the song. And so I, I knocked on the door and we said, Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Got through the pleasantries really quick as I said, okay, what were you just playing? Because I love that thing and I want I think I know how the next part goes. So he ran over the piano and played it and I hummed what I had and just like I described, that's how we started on that tune.
0: We're listening to my recent conversation with Kenny Loggins. His new book is called Still All Right, A Memoir. The title is a reference to his hit song, I'm All Right. It was the theme music to the
1: 1980 movie Caddyshack.
0: More from Kenny in just a moment. Let's get back to my recent conversation with singer-songwriter Kenny Loggins about his new memoir, Still All Right. In it, he writes about how collaborations have led to some of his biggest hits. So I asked him how writing music with someone else differs from writing alone.
2: It's dramatically different in a number of ways. Primarily, the reason I started collaborating was because I started imagining things, I say, I call it hearing things, that I couldn't play. Then One thing led to another, and I discovered that I was writing in a completely different style when I collaborated. That to be a good collaborator, at least from my point of view, you have to be able to to empathetically become the person you're writing with. And especially someone like Mike McDonald, who is a really distinct style of his own. And he doesn't go out. The, the walls of that style don't go too far. So in order to write with him, I have to join him in that place and then and then extend it out. You know, if I was Mike, what would what, what I do next? And, uh, and of course, it's not what Mike would do next. It's what I would do next. But I'm thinking as if I'm an extension of him. I would do that with a lot of the keyboard guys that I wrote with that Especially could give me chordal things, so I could say, ooh, not that one. Add this note to it. Then that's chord changes.
0: We learn a lot about your musical relationships in the memoir. But we also learn a lot about your personal relationships. Your seventh studio album, Leap of Faith, was released in 1991. And it came at a time when your first marriage was ending and your second was beginning how did those changes in your personal life show up in your music?
2: Uh, dramatically. Uh, the first songs that I wrote for that album were heartbreak songs. Uh, the, one of the first ones I wrote with Guy Thomas was a song called Now or Never.
1: If I have to make up my mind, maybe now is the time to decide.
2: Which the lyric was really saying, you know, I know I have to make the decision. Why does it have to be now? And then Guy and I wrote a song called Conviction of the Heart, which became a real anthemic piece for me. And there's a line in the song that Guy brought to me, actually, that was, I'd never given love with any conviction of the heart.
1: i have never given love With any conviction of the heart
2: Really resonated for me that Something here has got to change That there's got to be An awakening to take place and it, and it actually happened for me During the period of time And then I saw the music just as, as Things became more and more conscious You know, the, the song I wrote Real thing about You know, leaving the marriage um, I did it for you And the boys Because love should teach you joy
1: Because love should teach you joy
2: not the imitation that your mommy and daddy tried to show you. I did it for you and for me and because I still believe.
1: There's
2: only one thing you can never give up or ever compromise on, and that's the real thing you need in love. That song came to me, lyrics and music, all at once and scared the out of me. So I, I had to run from it for about a year. So there, there were stunts. it was a very autobiographical piece, and the music was just pouring through. You know, there was obviously an interim time between the dissolution of my marriage and the beginning of my relationship with my next, the woman that would become my next wife, Julia. And, um, and so there's this whole flow of a complete cycle of the, First marriage dissolution, and then into a relationship, and the second marriage, and it was an opportunity as an artist to really try to express the emotions that take place through that whole process—the loss, the deep sadness, and then the movement into falling in love and ecstasy that accompanies that.
0: It, it's striking to me that you said that you wrote a song that scared you. What what was yeah. what was scary about the song?
2: I was not aware when I wrote those lyrics that my first marriage was actually coming to a close. Hmm. And, and so that, that part of me that writes the music is not necessarily my conscious mind. And, and so I like to say that my songs are, often sending me
0: messages. (laughs) It's, Mm.
2: you know?
0: Yeah. When you look at the memoir, because I would imagine writing a memoir, you have to revisit times that are both um, joyful and incredibly painful. What lessons do you think you, you took away from those two marriages?
2: Um some good and not good, some um, it took me a long time uh, after the dissolution of my second marriage to be willing to be in another relationship. So I could say that fear of relationship would be a lesson I took away. Um, I could also say that um, when that world, when my world came apart after that second marriage, um, I threw everything I believed up into the air. And it just said, I'm only going to take back the stuff that really belongs to me.
0: What What is that process of filtering through what, what belongs to you and what doesn't? What does that process look like for you?
2: I, I did not rush that. <laughs> it took about seven years to, uh, as my therapist called it, reconstellating your inner cosmology. <laughs> I love that line. And... Um, that's pretty much what I had to do. Um, I had to see what I really believed, what what fit me, what fit me at this stage of my life. And I think that, that the music that came out of that was also a very a powerful period. And the return to the P- Pooh Corner record, you know, had come through that marriage and Leap of Faith had come through that marriage. So there was a lot of shedding to be done and a lot of grieving to be done. And then, and then you gradually rebuild your sense of self. You know, one of the things that I'd lost faith in was who I was. And, um, and I think that's common. It took years before I was willing to really let myself fall in love.
0: You also reveal in the memoir that in the early 2000s, you were prescribed psychoactive drugs called benzodiazepines, often referred to as benzos. And, and this was to help calm your nerves after that, that second divorce, I believe. And yeah. this led to... Really enduring. Ad- enduring. Yeah. Th- and this led to a- an addiction. What was happening in your life at that time? And, and when did you come to the realization that that there was a problem
2: that was early on in the divorce, especially. Um, and I had two young ones that I had to be capable of being with. And, um, and so, um, because my nerves were shot, the doctor gave me benzos so that I could be a functioning dad, you know, not, not a zombie by any means, but just, you know, somebody who could get a meal on the table. And, um, uh, And that went on for a couple of years, you know, because once you're addicted, getting off of it is extremely difficult. And it just seems like, well, maybe it's easier to just stick with it. And I think the part of the problem with the benzos was that it disrupted the grieving time for me. And so it actually postponed it. And I wasn't aware that that would be the case. Uh, I figured I'll just grow through it. You know, and so maybe I'm get a little bit of help from the benzodiazepine, but I'm uh, my dog is asleep.
0: <laughs> okay, I was wondering if I was
2: hearing. <laughs> <laughs> it keep distracting me. It's a snorer. I'm
1: so, yeah.
0: i have two at home as well, and every now and then I'll hear an errant snore, and I'm like, okay, who was who was that it, in it the room? The dog. Right <laughs> um, oh, but, yeah. Well, I want to talk about a song you wrote after visiting your father. He was getting ready to go into surgery. And uh, this is another song you co wrote with Michael McDonald. It actually won a Grammy, this one for a best male pop vocal performance in 1981. This is it. Are you- Whenever I heard that song, and I always heard it, I, I, I guess it's more of a, of a love song or, or urging a, a, a lover, like this relationship, this is it. But tell us the, the real story behind, behind the song.
2: Yeah, Mike and I had uh, on a writing session, this was after What a Fool Believes, uh, we started working on this melody. And the melody came through with opening line was, um, there have been times in my life I've been wondering why. And then a little melodic piece in the middle, you think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be. And we were thinking maybe it's over was referring to a relationship like you did. And then uh, my dad went in the hospital and I, I visited him in the morning of the surgery and he and I had a talk and he was trying to convince me that he was prepared to die on the operating table. And that pissed me off because I felt like, well, you, you have a say in this, you, you know, your attitude that you take in will have a lot to do with determining the outcome. And we had a, a you know, a discussion argument about the concept. And, um, and then I went, while the surgery was going on, I went to write with Mike just to pick up the slack and to see where we left off. And when, when we got to the line, you think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be, then it suddenly the light bulb went on. I went, oh, this is a life song. This is not a love song. This is about deciding to live.
0: Did your father hear the song?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I played it for him. I wanted to play it for him the day of the surgery, but I didn't have enough with me to be able to show it to him, but I showed it to him after and he did make it.
0: There's this term that has, has developed uh, yacht rock to describe a style of music uh, popular in in the late 70s and early 80s, and and much of your music squarely fell into that. What do you think of that label today?
2: It doesn't bother me because up until that point, we didn't have any label on this. (laughs) It was just a a part of pop music that came and went. And... um, uh, now, since because it's been labeled, everybody wants to analyze it and talk about it and define it and say, "What are the sources of yacht rock?" And you know, it's like, "What who, What artists have has yacht rock influenced?" And I, I don't know. Just I'm just watching here. I just showed up, but um, it is fun to have that part of my musical history now defined as a separate genre in rock and roll. You know,
0: I didn't. We didn't
2: imagine it that way. We just saw it as the next step.
0: When you think about your career and all of the songs you, you've written and collaborated on, is is there a song you return to that for you captures your life? Like, if you had to have a theme song, ah. is there a song that stands out for you? I think in a way it's Conviction
2: of the Heart from the Leap of Faith album because the, the arc of that character has very much seemed... It seems very similar to the arc of my own life, that uh, he starts off being disconnected from himself and, and
0: has to learn somehow that he isn't disconnected from anyone or anything. That was musician Kenny Loggins talking to us about his new book, Still All Right, a memoir. Thank you to Kenny and his dog Rocket, who gave us a little extra music for our conversation. Today's producer was Avery JC Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
1: This is the time to bring them back. What will the promise? Forget or forget There's a whole other life Waiting to live with One day we're brave enough To talk with conviction now the heart